Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic topics. But now you are tuned into our OICE review series. We hope you all enjoyed the first two episodes. Now, if this is your first time listening, this is an OITE review series. We'll try to do a couple weekly episodes uh, going over high-yield topics for the orthopedic in-training exam and our first overall category is trauma so we kind of went over open trauma open fractures and stuff in our last episode and now we will go over some upper extremity trauma now again if you have not please hit that subscribe button please leave us a review that would help out a ton and share this with your colleagues if you're a resident and you have other residents that you know could use some assistance with oite studying send this to them so without further ado please enjoy this episode You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. This is a different series. Uh, We're doing OITE OITE review, and we're kind of going over some trauma myself and Dr. Woolwine here um, are going to go over some upper extremities. So let's just hop right into it. You, you cool with that, Spencer? Yeah. And uh, one more thing to just reiterate again, if you guys have any anything else you want us to cover, you think we missed something or uh, anything like that, we can always just add in a quick five, 10 minute uh, episode to, to cover a topic that you think is worthwhile. So yeah, I'm, I got my coffee and uh, I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah. It's charged up. I have a I got an orange over here. I know that's strange. Not not like normally, you know, coffee or something, but I got an orange and some water. So uh, I yes. am uh, charged up all for that, this talk. All that caffeine that you find in oranges. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, all right, Spencer. So just starting off, what's the best view, the best x-ray view that you should get to see a sternoclavicular joint dislocation? Oh, man. The, uh, the serendipity, which uh, is really just a 40-degree cephalic tilt uh of the x-ray beam and uh the so you talk about like cephalic uh tilt and you talk about caudal uh tilt and really that um the when you have a cephalad uh view or when it says cephalic tilt you're actually um pointing the x-ray beam toward the head um, rather than uh, bringing the x-ray beam closer to the head and pointing it more towards the uh, rest of the body rather than a caudal view which is going to be aiming more towards the uh, body and uh, kind of lower aspects of it which um, I didn't quite understand until uh, recently look, looking it up. Um, we have the benefit of uh, almost every trauma patient just gets run through the CT scanner as they run yeah. or as they come in through our uh, ER. Um, and so uh, I think that really the best view of this or the best uh, evaluation of this is a CT scan, but it is a lot of radiation for uh, a, a simple SC joint dislocation. So don't forget about that serendipity view. Um, and then uh, as we look at these, as we look at this serendipity view, um, uh, we know that the SC joint can dislocate really just anterior or posterior. There's not a lot of inferior or superior dislocations of this. Um, so which one do you think is a, uh, more common? 
So anterior is is more common um, and is more likely to be unstable, but it's also more times also asymptomatic. Okay, so you know when you have an anterior um, ST dislocation, you know how you kind of treat this is non-operatively. So you close reduce it, and if it's stable, you kind of just put it in a a figure of eight brace. So again, anterior um, ST dislocations are more common, and you treat these non-op by close reducing and putting it in a figure of eight brace. Now, what are some of the symptoms, and you mentioned anterior and posterior, what are some of the symptoms of a, or possible symptoms of a posterior SC dislocation or sternoclavicular joint dislocation? Yeah, so SC joint being kind of right in the middle of our upper chest, and it's really at that traversing point of a lot of the major uh, vessels, uh, airways, uh, and everything else that kind of goes from our head and neck down into our thorax. So um, you can get dysphagia from compression through the uh, trachea into the esophagus. You can have difficulty breathing because of the uh, uh, compression on the uh, trachea. And then uh, symptoms of throat fullness and can also see uh, some uh, kind of gorging of the neck veins if it is uh, compressing on those uh, veins to prevent the uh, the flow back down into the superior vena cava. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like the 30% have that kind of compressive dysfunction. And um, because of that uh, posterior, uh, uh, because of the, all the dangerous posterior structures, um, what, uh, what makes it kind of different than that kind of non-operative anterior dislocation that you uh, just briefly summarized. Yeah, so for the anteriors, you know, we talked about close reducing it and putting in a brace, but for these posterior ST dislocations, these are the ones you typically want to do in the OR, or you want to do it, you know, under anesthesia, and you can attempt a close reduction, but sometimes you need to open reduce it, and, you know, some people just use their fingers to to um, to reduce it, or sometimes you know there are things that people are using towel clips to reduce these dislocations, and you know there's whole you know articles on it. You abduct the arm out, and uh, you know that can kind of help help with your reduction maneuver. And I know one of the things that was very tested was a lot of times we wanted to have a thoracic surgeon on standby because just like you said, you're dealing with a lot of those those uh, those structures, you know, you kind of esophagus back there, trachea, a lot of things that we aren't, you know, that, that, that we aren't experts in. But, you know, as of more recently, I think there have been some um, some studies or some some things out there saying that a thoracic surgeon may not be needed in some of these cases, um, you know, in case that is a, a question. But the way you kind of treat these is, is, you know, you go to the OR and you, and you, and you fix it and you uh, close reduce it uh, or open reduce it using your fingers or some towel clips. Now, yeah. moving forward or moving on to, I know something that's pretty common um, that you'll definitely see at some point in residency. And these are going to be clavicle fractures. So can you kind of just talk about the different areas of the clavicle and then what what's the most common portion of the clavicle that's fractured? Yeah, I think uh, you, I mean, what is this? The most, I think this is the most common bone fractured uh, in orthopedics or uh, something like that. It's in the top three for sure. Um, and we have uh, medial, mid shaft and distal one third. And um, I, uh, 
believe that there is a distinction kind of where these kind of start and stop. Um, but I don't think it's really that uh, relevant. Um, so uh, the obviously what we see the most of and uh, treat the most, I would I would say is either the mid shaft or distal third, and that makes up about 95% of these. And the 5% that happen medial are really, uh, a, a lot of those are very high energy or direct impact to that medial third. And uh, oftentimes the, the bone is stronger than the uh, sternoclavicular uh, ligaments. And so I think why the, you don't see a lot of these is um, you'll see a failure of the ligaments resulting in an SC dislocation uh, before you see a fracture medially. And so it's key to know that the, the mid shaft and distal third make up a vast majority of these uh, types of injuries. And those are uh, closed and open. But uh, when we talk about open clavicle fractures, um, you can see a kind of a multitude of other uh, uh, injuries with those. And uh, would you be so uh, uh, kind to enlighten us on, on what those are? Yeah, you know, patients that have these open clavicle fractures, typically higher energy mechanisms. And these are going to be patients that may have, you know, pulmonary injuries, you know, because the lungs are right there. Uh, we also could have, you know, closed head injuries. So just, just know that open fractures are associated with pulmonary and closed head injuries. Now, I know you just, we just touched on that mid shaft and distal make up about 95% of the clavicle fractures, mid shaft making up about 80% of them. And one of the big things that we always hear of are non-unions in these mid shaft clavicle fractures. And we know that this happens, you know, around 15% of the time, give or take. But what are some risks for non-unions in these mid-shaft clavicle fractures? Um, yeah, and these are the ones that we're, we're uh, kind of talking about with the, with the non-operative treatment and sling immobilization versus figure of eight braces. But um, there's really been no functional or cosmetic differences between those. Uh, but, yeah, when we're looking at the non-union rate at about 1% to 5%, uh, for the uh, non-operatively treated clavicle fractures, we see uh, more non-unions in those with comminution, those with greater than 100% displacement, um, greater than two centimeters of shortening um, can be tough to gauge really on x-rays. But if you see a lot of overlap, you can kind of just intuitively say, hey, these are this is a, a really shortened clavicle. Um, Elderly patients and uh, female patients um, are the are really the the main risks of the uh, non-unions uh, here. So it's like somebody's grandma with a bad broken bone. You just think of that, then you know yeah. those are going to be the ones that have higher risk for non-union. Female, elderly, commuted, shortened. Yeah, like a, a short grandma, a, a short grandma that has a really bad fracture. That's the way to think about it. <laughs> to remember that. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and like I said before, we kind of kind of briefly touched on uh, these, but um, with the uh, the figure of eight brace, I've fractured my clavicle twice. One in the first game of uh, football season in high school, and one oh, the second one. Remember, you, you told me you were you were you were fighting a lion, and oh, yeah, uh, yeah, you're fighting the lion, and and you you fended off a village of children. 
and 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 you were just taking it down and you fell in, in your clavicle fracture that was the exactly. second time. that was uh that was the uh, main points during my uh, personal <laughs> statements you know that's, that's what got me into orthopedics in the first place but uh exactly. i used i had a figure of eight brace and i loved it um but a figure of eight and a sling are equivalent like i said before um but other non-operative indications for these clavicle fractures are uh kind of the opposite of what are the risks for non-union. So less than two centimeters of shortening, less than 100% displacement. Um, and the reason why we treat these uh, ones that are greater than two centimeters shortened is um, you do see uh, uh, a, with a healed fracture, let's say it heals, you do see decreased shoulder endurance and strength. And a lot of that is related to the lever arm that the clavicle provides is when you have a shorter lever arm, you're working kind of against physics. Um, but uh, when we're talking about taking these patients to surgery, um, what sort of uh, uh, indications are you uh, going to use out in practice or do you present to your attendings? Yeah, so, you know, absolute indications to treat mid-shaft clavicle fractures. One are open fractures. Um, two is, you know, impending or, or impending open fractures or, you know, one where there's skin compromised. You know, you go and look at the patient and you see like, blanching discoloration of the skin and you you can you know you look and you see the that bro that broken displaced into that clavicle um, pushing up and and you know you don't want that skin to break down and, and lead into an open fracture so those are the ones you're going to treat and then also you know is it's, there's some uh studies out there that state that clavicle fractures associated with a neurovascular injury should also be be operated on uh, and, and these kind are of those like the, brachial plexus type right. injuries because you don't want to just give them a, a flail extremity. Exactly. And, and so what are some of the relative indications to treat mid-shaft clavicle fractures? Um, so uh, bilateral uh, clavicle fractures, you um, want to give them, at least with fixing it, you can give them some sort of a functioning uh, arm while it heals uh, so that they can do some activities of daily living and personal hygiene. Um, uh, brachial plexus uh, injury, um, like we talked about before, uh, falls uh, a little bit more under the relative and controversial indications. I think I personally would for somebody who has a brachial plexus injury just to give them a stable shoulder girdle, but um, that's uh, still not set in stone absolute um, those with the seizure disorder and uh, those uh, who are polytrauma as we'll see uh, kind of later on with more of the humerus fractures um, fixing upper extremity injuries and those that have lower extremity injuries as well uh, can sometimes lead to better uh, mobilization and uh, patient outcomes um, so uh, let's see here. Oh yeah. Also I have written down like a floating shoulder, uh, that you want to fix these so that you can also provide a, a stable, uh, shoulder girdle for them. Um, so we, there is a classification for, uh, mid shaft fractures, which, um, is really not known about because it's, uh, done by the same dude who came up with the proximal humerus fractures. Uh, and these can get uh, confused from time to time. But uh, you want to briefly talk about the classification of the uh, mid-shaft clavicle fractures? Yeah, this is going to be that near classification. And 
this one is is relatively simple. It's either you have less than or greater than 100% of displacement. And, you know, what they note is that if you have more than 100% displacement, you have a non-union rate of around 4.5%. So, you know, again, near classification for mid-shaft uh, clavicle fractures, less than or greater than 100% displacement, and the non-union rate is somewhere around 4.5% if you are over 100% displaced. Now, when we go in and, you know, look at our, when we're talking about, you know, going further away from the midpoint and going more lateral, and we're talking about our distal third clavicle fractures, what are some of the, you know, key structures that contribute to the stability of these distal clavicle fractures? Uh, yeah, so um, the uh, distal third of the clavicle does uh, kind of provide a very important uh, uh, lever arm for the rest of the upper extremity. And it is under, uh, it does have a lot more stabilizing structures than like the mid shaft of the clavicle, which really doesn't have much. And even the medial portion of the clavicle. So we're looking at like the AC joint uh, capsule and AC ligaments as well as the uh, coracoclavicular ligaments um, that uh, help stabilize the clavicle to the uh, scapula. Um, and again, uh, this uh, Dr. Near, he happened to know some stuff and uh, is pretty uh, well known in the uh, orthopedic uh, community. Um, also has a distal third clavicle fracture uh, yeah. classification. And so we know the very simple mid shaft one is just greater than 100% or less than 100%. Uh, but um, the a little bit more complex near classification of the distal third clavicle fractures uh, is uh, a little bit more daunting. But um, if you want to briefly kind of go over that. Yeah, so, you know, you got, you got I feel like for this, you have to like look at it and read it a couple times. But, you know, again, the near classification for distal third clavicle fracture. So our type one, you're going to be lateral to our CC ligaments. Okay. So these are going to be the ones that are stable and they don't have much displacement. Right. So lateral to our CC ligaments is going to be our type one. Um, our type 2A is going to be medial to our CC ligaments. So these fractures are going to be usually displaced and you know, these are can be associated with non-union rates as high as up to greater than 50% if treated non-operatively. So typically these can be, you know, treated operatively. So again, review type one is lateral to CC. Type 2A is medial to CC. Type 2B is going to be between or lateral to the CC ligaments. Um, and these are going to be, again, typically unstable, uh, unstable, uh, fracture patterns. Okay. So again, fracture, it can occur between the CC ligaments resulting from the conoid uh, ligament torn and the trapezium uh, ligament intact. And for our type three, because these are going to be lateral to our CC ligaments, but these extend into the AC joint. So our type ones were also lateral to the CC ligaments, but it did not extend into our AC joint. So those are extra articular versus our type threes do extend into the AC joint. Um, and again, these are usually non-operatively non treated, but a thing to note about that is fracture extends into the AC joint, you have a higher risk of AC joint arthritis. Type four are gonna be our pediatric distal third uh, physio fracture, okay? And these are gonna be the ones that 
can be treated non-operatively for the most part. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's because uh, the periosteal sleeve is still in, no, I'm thinking about something else. We'll get to that in a bit. But our type four is again gonna be our pediatric distal um, third physio fractures, usually treated non-operatively. And our type fives are gonna be our comminuted fracture with displacement. And our CC ligaments are usually intact but the amount of comminution kind of warns open reduction and internal fixation. I know that is a lot to yeah. think about. So what may be easiest is looking, you know, Googling and looking at a chart of, you know, the near classification in, in these distal clavicle fractures to kind of cement it in your mind. Um, and, and, you know, so patients yeah. that have these, you know, go ahead. Uh, and I, I mean, a lot of this is, uh, I mean, I guess this is more like kind of real world applications for it is when you're looking at distal third clavicle fractures, I mean, especially through this classification, if there's a large jump distance that the uh, uh, osteoblasts are going to have to make in order to uh, repair these fractures non-operatively, uh, then you, you kind of want to aim a little bit more towards being a little bit more aggressive with these. You're definitely more aggressive with these compared to the mid-shaft clavicle fractures, just because like what you said before with these type 2As, I mean, no one is going to uh, really be okay with a 50% or 56% non-union rate. So uh, it's really just one of those, when you look at it, if you're like, wow, that is displaced, then it's probably unstable and probably should be operated on. Yep. Yep, totally agree. And since we're, you know, talking about things that are going to be operated on, what are just some, you know, some things that, are, you know, that, that, that drive your operative decision for these distal third clavicle fractures? Yeah, so that it, like, I, like I just said, that amount of displacement um, definitely is something I look for. And then uh, a lot of it is uh, patient demands and uh, patient characteristics. So, I mean, if you have... Uh, so yeah, if you have a, a, a laborer and uh, let's say he like fell off a ladder at work, construction worker landed on his shoulder, has a distal third uh, clavicle fracture, you're, um, and it, let's say it's just like moderately displaced um, because of his characteristics and in injuring his dominant arm and requiring use of that arm for his job, um, probably going to be a little bit more aggressive in treating those just because he's got about 30 years left of his career and want to get him back uh, with a functioning arm that has, that doesn't have, like uh, we talked about before, the decreased strength and endurance that he's going to require for his uh, job. Um, but if it's a, somebody who's a little bit more sedentary, they don't do much, they're okay with non-operative treatment after you've talked to them about it, then can maybe get away with some moderate displacement there. Um, but then you're also looking at, um, uh, like in the elderly patient, patients with a displaced fracture, really can uh, be very cautious with those. And uh, you want to try a sling and early range of motion first uh, before you uh, sign them up for any uh, aggressive surgery. And uh, now that we've kind of gone over uh, what we look for to uh, uh operate on these patients um, uh, with clavicle fractures. Um, there's several uh, different uh, kind of ways we can do it. And it kind of depends on uh, who you're working with or, or what study you read. But uh, 
I don't know if you want to go over the difference between anterior versus superior plating. Yeah, sure. I'll go over it. And, and in a lot of these studies, they, you know, they, they do these studies and they're, they're talking about using a, a three, five LCDCP plate. So that's what we're referring to now. Um, so with anterior plating, there have been some studies that show that it has superior strength and durability compared to superior plating. Um, but there are other studies that show that with anterior plating, um, you know, you have a higher load. Uh, and I'm sorry, they, there are other studies that show you have a higher load to failure with superior plating. So they're conflicting studies. You know, one of the studies that at least that is based on that the anterior plating has superior strength and durability is actually a cadaver study that was published in the Journal of Trauma in 2017 titled Biomechanical Comparison of Superior versus Anterior Plate Position for Fixation of Distal Clavicle Fractures. And again, they found that with anterior plating, they had superior strength and durability, but other studies show other things. So, you know, um, next thing is superior plating. Um, that's going to be associated more with plate prominence and have higher removal rates. I mean, which makes sense. Like if you just feel the top part of your clavicle, you can kind of feel how subcutaneous that is. And uh, superior plating is also associated with increased, you know, rates of subclavian penetration because the subclavian artery runs kind of right on, right under the, the clavicle, you know, subclavian. And uh, you also have shorter screw lengths because of that. But in all, there are similar union rates between both anterior and superior plating. So union rates, very similar, but with superior plating, uh, more plate prominence, higher removal rates, and, you know, associated uh, subclavian uh, artery penetration. Now, for these patients that, and we haven't touched anything on dual plating. I don't know if they really question or talk about dual plating as much in OIT. So I, I don't know. We won't, may, may not yeah, cover it right now. I'm not sure that that's a, I mean, it might be in a few years uh, when they come out with the, uh, just because those, these LCDC plates are still, uh, they're pretty thick. And I yeah. think that um, what people are starting to do is to use more, kind of slim streamlined plates, but because they are weaker plates overall, if you do plate both anteriorly and superiorly, then you have equivalent uh, strength with uh, smaller or thinner plates, which may decrease the rate of prominence and, and removal. But um, I think that really the main questions that I've seen on the OIT is really just the difference between anterior and superior plating. Yeah. And, and so patients, you know, that undergo, say they want to go superior or anterior plating, again, which we both said leads to similar union rates. What's well, like a typical post-op re uh, rehabilitation protocol? So a lot of it is just uh, kind of sling um, with uh, gentle uh, Codman's uh, rotations for the first uh, week or two. And then uh, increasing uh, range of motion. Uh, for the next four weeks. And really, once you get to six weeks, that's the important part is that's when uh, strengthening can occur. And then you return to sport around uh, three months after that. Um, so it's uh, the, the key parts of that are not necessarily the cognitive circles and shoulder range of motion, but at six weeks, let's strengthen these uh, uh, guys and gals back up and then return to sport or return to their um, 
labor intensive job at about three months. Uh, and then the more sedentary people can kind of, if they're uh, working at a desk on a computer answering phones, they can probably go back to work a bit sooner. Um, and then uh, kind of as we move from medial to lateral on the clavicle, you asked me about the serendipity view of the uh, SC joint, but uh, now let's move our uh, kind of a visualization over the AC joint. Yeah, so when we're trying to visualize the AC joint, this is going to be called the Zanka view. So instead with the serendipity view, you had a 40 degree cephalic tilt. The Zanka view is going to be a 10 degree cephalic tilt. And just like Spencer, just like you said a little bit earlier, you're going to be aiming the beam towards the head. That is what the cephalic tilt is. You are aiming towards the head. So again, Zanka view is the best view to visualize an AC joint injury. Now, what part of the AC joint capsule is the strongest? Uh Two parts of it, the posterior and superior, because they are mainly uh, resisting posterior displacement, but also uh, superior displacement, along with the CC uh, uh, ligaments as well. Um, and then you'll see this as a little bit of a transition into the sports realm with the distal clavicle excision. Uh, as you enter that AC joint and you uh, do your distal clavicle excision, you want to make sure that you preserve those posterior and superior portions of the capsule uh, to prevent exactly this, that posterior displacement. And um, uh, the uh, main ligaments around the AC joint are obviously the, the AC ones <laughs> and the yeah. CC ligaments, the conoid and trapezoid. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe the conoid is the more medial and trapezoid is the more lateral of those ligaments. Um, yes, that is correct. And I, uh, I heard a very crude way to remember this that I will not repeat on air, but there, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of another way to say it, uh, maybe a, a cone in between the tracks. So, you know, the C is, is, is medial and then tracks are lateral or something. I don't know. It's just, just some way to remember that it's conoid and then trapezoid. Exactly. I did uh, alphabetical. So the yeah. C is medial and T is lateral alphabetically. It just kind of makes sense to me. But um, when uh, we're looking at these uh, ligaments being torn, we talked about the distal clavicle fractures, but if there's no fracture and we have these ligaments torn, what type of injury occurs? Yeah. So when both of these ligaments are torn, it's going to be a type three injury. And this is going to, this is, we're talking about the Rockwood classification. And so that's, that'll be a type three when you have injury to both the AC and the CC ligaments. Type one is just when you have an AC joint sprain. Um, type two is when the AC ligaments are ruptured, but the CC and the CC joints are sprained. And then again, type three, both are torn. Then type four, the way I remember this is, uh, I remember one of our attendings was like, you know, the the tire thing for, the thing that measures the pressure on tires is like PSI. So that's how I remembered four, five, and six is that you have posterior displacement or four superior displacement in five and then inferior displacement of the clavicle in six. Um, so oh, I like never heard yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, me either until he said it and I just remembered it for life now, so. Maybe whoever's getting pimped on morning, you know, fracture conference, hopefully this helps you remember that. Um, so what is the typical treatment for type one and two AC joint injuries? Again, type one, where it's just an AC joint sprain and then type 
two where the AC ligaments are ruptured, but it, the CC joint, the CC ligaments are intact, but just sprained. Uh, yeah. So uh, non-op, um, we're not going to see a lot of displacement on the x-rays. We're just going to have a lot of sh anterior shoulder pain in those areas. So non-op with a sling and then uh, to prevent any sort of uh, complications from uh, whether it's adhesive capsulitis, which can occur because you have had an injury to the shoulder or just other uh, related shoulder stiffness. You want to get them moving at about seven to 10 days for early range of motion. And then once they, they achieve full painless range of motion, we're starting to strengthen these guys back up again. Um, and then uh, you talked about the, uh, the type three injury being a, uh, uh, rupture of both AC and CC ligaments. Um, is the uh, treatment for that really straightforward and, and set in stone or, or uh, what are we looking at here? Oh no, this is an area of controversy. Um, there are many different studies saying many different things. Some say operative treatment, some say non-operative treatment, but I think if you're asked on a test, I think the first thing to do would be to start with non-operative treatment. And, you know, there are a lot of different studies out there that talk about the differences in operative versus non-operative treatment in type three injuries. And something that they, they found um, is that in the operative group, they, you know, they, they have better cosmesis uh, and they have a, a, a greater duration of sick leave, but in a non-operative group, they tend to return to work quicker which I, I don't know, it doesn't make the most sense to me, but they tend to re return to work quicker if they don't have surgery. Um, but obviously if you have surgery, cosmesis, you know, because it doesn't look like, you know, part of the part of your shoulder sticking up is what I would think. Yeah. Um, but the big thing to, to know that there's no differences in strength, pain, uh, ability to throw overhead or AC joint arthritis. And that is out of a, a recent um, review evaluating surgical versus non-surgical management for these injuries by uh, an author, Smith et al. So that is the treatment of type three injuries. Now, uh, what type of AC joint injuries are typically treated operatively? Yeah, so, I mean, classically we're, we're taught the uh, type four, five, and six. So it's that PSI, that posterior, that superior and that inferior uh, uh, displacement, um, which uh, a lot of it is just because of, uh, like I said, the biomechanics of that shoulder and uh, kind of restoring that lever arm. Um, but uh, there, I mean, uh, the unfortunate side of uh, orthopedics that we can see is uh, for every study that says, uh, that you have very good outcomes with uh, surgery. There's uh, people out there that are showing uh, pretty decent um, outcomes with uh, non-operative management. Um, and although they excluded the type sixes in this study, and I'm not sure if that was just because they treated them all surgically or it is such a rare entity, but um, the uh, Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society I had a randomized clinical trial of non-operative versus operative uh, AC joint dislocations, and and they showed uh, pretty similar outcomes between operative and non-operative management of type fours and fives. Yeah, and and what are some of the uh, the fixation options for these types of AC joint injuries? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so they, I mean, it's kind of a grab bag of uh, different uh, ways that you can uh, treat these. 
Um, if it is uh, one that's simple where this uh, CC ligaments are disrupted, you can do the uh, classic Bosworth screw, which is a superior to inferior screw that goes from the distal clavicle into the uh, coracoid. Um, not, uh, it's kind of fallen out of favor uh, because it's, you're asking a lot out of that one single screw and uh, it does provide a rigid internal fixation, but there is a high pullout. Uh, and uh, if you while you're drilling that screw, you're going right through the coracoid and there's a lot of very dangerous structures on the other side of that coracoid. So um, you want to be uh, very cautious of that. I, I've never seen it done, um, but it's, it's still talked about. Um, you can also do uh, coracoclavicular uh, suture fixation, which is uh, pretty popular in the uh, sports world, um, which is really just a, you put a suture uh, around or through the clavicle and the base of the coracoid, either with a suture button or a tie on the top with a suture anchor. Um, the suture is not quite as strong as the screws, but um, if, uh, if this is what is very good in your hands, then by all means, go ahead and do it. Uh, the uh, hook plate um, is another uh, way to to, uh, to treat these, not uh, the best in my opinion, just because I've seen some of them uh, fail before that were placed years ago and they presented to clinic. Um, but yeah. a lot of times you, you're really combining the two. So um, you're like a modified weaver done, I think is the, is the big one to know, which is a uh, coracoclavicular uh uh, fixation, but also like uh, AC ligament transfer to the distal clavicle and it's augmented uh, with uh, some sort of graft. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a million and one ways to skin a cat. I know there are, you know, hundreds of different um, techniques to, to fix these AC joint injuries, but yeah, just like you said, a lot of people um, combine, combine the two of those. And, and so I know we talked about a, a type four AC joint injury, uh, in a in a skeletally immature patient, should we should we treat those type four AC joint injuries in skeletally immature patients? Uh, you know, it's uh, because they have their uh, periosteal sleeve. It's more likely a clavicle fracture, a distal clavicle fracture, uh, than a uh, ligament injury. I mean, just like we see with a, a lot of pediatric injuries, the the ligaments are very robust and strong and their attachments to the bone are very uh, strong, but they do have uh, weak points, notably at their physes, a, a lot of the uh, kind of like the hypertrophic zone. Um, we'll get into that later on in our PEDS discussion, but um, yeah, the, it's most likely a distal clavicle fracture and these tend to do very well uh, treated non-operatively. So a uh, key point with the uh, skeletally immature patient is uh, very rare to have a AC injury in those kids. Um, and kind of now we're going out even more into the shoulder girdle um, and uh, talking about uh, some scapula fractures. We all hope you enjoyed this episode on some OIT review on this upper extremity. 
uh, at least the beginning of it. Now, again, if this is your first time, please hit that subscribe button and uh, tune in and put your email. If you look in the link in the description, uh, you can put your email there and, you know, you will be uh, on top of it as far as our eventual audio podcast companion book for the OIT. All right. Until next time.